Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney, and I feel like we say this all the time, but once again, the biggest weekend in the year for the sport, tainted by controversy, disqualifications, Oh, wait a minute. That wasn't actually boxing. Thank you, horse racing, for making us look good. I, I knew where you were going with that. Uh, midway through the setup, I figured, oh, this is going to be a, a misdirection toward a Kentucky Derby joke. Well done, Kieran. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, so we are recording very early this morning, uh, a, a good bit earlier on Sunday than we usually do, because I have big plans today. Uh, you know this already, Kieran, but the listeners don't. I'm going to see Hamilton for the first time this afternoon, uh, going with my wife, my mother, and my mother-in-law, just us four gals, heading up to New York <laughs> shortly. Um, but it's a funny story how we ended up with these tickets to see the show today, Um I'm not huge into musicals. They're fine. Whatevs. Uh, but my wife loves them, and I knew she'd been wanting to see Hamilton for years. So I entered a lottery, and I got an email that I'd been chosen, just needed to be online at a certain time, and I could buy tickets. That time that I needed to be online, it turned out I was not going to be available, so I assigned it to my wife to get us tickets. Uh, this was about a year ago, maybe a little more. Uh, and you and I were still working for HBO at the time. I told her, try not to get Saturday night tickets. We don't want to <laughs> conflict with a big fight. That was all That was all the instruction that I gave her. Avoid Saturday nights if you can. I neglected to spell out because I thought she knew. Avoid Cinco de Mayo weekend and Mexican Independence Day weekend. The other 50 weekends of the year, fine. We'll, we'll take our chances with a fight being scheduled. Uh, but those two, obviously, high likelihood I'll be in Vegas podcasting for HBO. Of course, she gets tickets for Sunday, May 5th. Uh, the instant she tells me, I say, great, who are you planning to give my ticket to? Uh, <laughs> figuring there's about a 90% chance I'll be in Vegas that weekend. Now, fast forward a year, there is no HBO boxing. There is no need for me to cover the big May 4th fight in person. It all worked out just fine. Uh, but I must say, a, a year or so ago when she picked this date, I was pretty damn pissed off. And uh, and this, Kieran, is why you were wise not to get married. <laughs> You know, honestly, if Robin knew that we weren't going to be in Las Vegas working for HBO on Cinco de Mayo week, she could have told us and saved <laughs> right. us a lot of stress. Wow! So she she saw it all coming. She saw the the prophecy. She was she was well ahead of uh, everything that unfolded last year, huh? Yes, yes. TLDR, Eric. Thank you, my darling wife, for making sure that we have tickets to Hamilton, which people kill each other to try and get. <laughs> Yeah, she she's not going to hear this podcast, and I hope no I hope nobody will send it to her. Obviously, obviously, uh, if you're listening, I was just joking about the not getting married thing. You know, the, 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 there was humor implicit in all of that, right? Oh, how we laugh! <laughs> <laughs> um, it is another jam-packed podcast this week that Robin Raskin will not be listening to. Uh, we have <laughs> news to discuss. Including the latest with Anthony Joshua and the heavyweight division. We have fights to preview, including a showbox triple header coming up on Friday. And we will take a dip into the mailbag, uh, which will include a major mea culpa from Kira Mulvaney. Um, but we will start things off with this past weekend's action and the middleweight championship showdown in Las Vegas that Eric and I were not uh, ringside for. Uh, Canelo <laughs> Alvarez. Prevailing over Daniel Jacobs by unanimous decision, 115-113, 115-113, and 116-112 to successfully defend the lineal middleweight title. It was certainly not as dramatic as Canelo's fights with Triple G. It wasn't as action-packed. It wasn't as controversial. 
Canelo boxed well. Some say it was perhaps his most complete performance. It certainly wasn't his most memorable win. Uh, I scored it 116-112. And for me, it was one of those fights, Eric, where, you know, the story of the fight felt different as it unfolded than the story of the rounds in the... It was close-ish, I guess, from for me, eight, eight to four. But there was also no question in my mind whatsoever uh, at the end who'd prevailed. Um, and unlike the Golovkin fights, I have absolutely no interest in rewatching it and rescoring <laughs> it. Um, what about you? How did you have it? I had it just a tiny bit wider. I had it 117, 111 mm. for Canelo. I gave Jacobs rounds one, seven, and nine. Gave all the rest to Canelo. But of the 12 rounds, I did mark seven of them as close so while it didn't feel like a 115-113 fight to me, it felt much more clear-cut than that. This is kind of what you were saying. Mm. I can see how the two judges ended up with those close cards. Uh, but ultimately, no controversy. That's good. No drama. That's not so good. Uh, the, <laughs> the biggest drama might have come the morning of the fight when Jacobs ignored the rehydration clause and paid high six figures to come into the ring as big as he wanted to. Um in the fight, there were moments when it looked like it was going to get exciting, yeah. but they died down quickly. They would last for five or ten seconds that, okay, it's heating up. No, no, it's not. Uh, Canelo yeah. was, was really controlling the pace. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't a bad fight. I wasn't booing from my couch, but it was it was a meh fight. So some impressive skill to appreciate. Not much beyond that. Um, and clearly Canelo was fighting the fight he wanted to in order to win. Meanwhile, it seemed to me that Jacobs was fighting like a guy who thought he could win close rounds and could win a close fight, and he didn't fight with any urgency. Now, as it turned out, the judges did give him a lot of close rounds, um, but still, he never went for the win the way you'd hope he would against a guy who historically wins all close decisions. Were you disappointed in Daniel Jacobs' performance? Uh, and and also, did, did he make a mistake going southpaw so much? So with the necessary caveat that always needs to be provided that it's very easy for a fat little man in Vermont to criticize <laughs> for, for watching from the safety of his couch, um, I was a little disappointed in Daniel Jacobs. I mean, look, it was Canelo Alvarez in Las Vegas. He had to have known that he needed to do more than, you know, make rounds close. Or, although having said that, you know, maybe it's time to put to bed the whole Canelo always gets the rubber, the green kind of thing. I mean, these last few fights of, with the exception of Adelaide Bird's scorecard, actually They've been judged pretty much down the middle and and and, and well, I think. Um, yeah. Um, but that said, you know, uh, I, f I felt like Jacobs needed to do more. I mean, that said, you know, the closeness of the scorecards, maybe he didn't do all that much wrong. Um, perhaps he was concerned that if he opened himself up more or stepped on the gas more, he would have left himself vulnerable to, to Canelo's counters. Um, perhaps that was the plan, to not give Canelo anything to work with. But... It just wasn't enough, and and this was his big moment, and it just, I don't know. It was, the bout felt underwhelming. It was the least mm -hmm. interesting Canelo fight I've seen in years, really, which actually, like you said, suited Canelo just fine. Um, yeah, both men were technically sound, but there was, there was just something missing throughout, and I, and I do think it was incumbent on Jacobs to find that something. Uh, and make it happen, uh, and he and he just didn't. And he did the frequency with which he switched stances surprised me. I mean, we talked about it last week. We've talked about it before. The fact that he's capable of doing that, but I, I didn't think he would he would do it as much as he did. And Canelo clearly had prepared for that. 
um, in the you know to, to refer to your, your question in that the, when Jacobs did have success, he did seem to have more of it from the orthodox position. Canelo was perfectly ready for him to go southpaw. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I, I I don't know. It was I, I was a little the whole fight for the build up. I thought it had the potential to be a very interesting fight. It, it was sort of intellectually interesting, but not viscerally. So, um, and as you mentioned, probably the biggest kerfuffle was Saturday morning when Jacobs, you know, seemingly made very little attempt to make the agreed fight morning way. Uh, but I also saw your tweet afterwards about. Size remaining overrated, Canelo's skill trumping everything that Jacobs did. So I've, I've just kind of like dumped on Daniel Jacobs a bit, perhaps a bit unfairly. But with regard to Canelo's skill, what, what were you impressed by? If indeed you were impressed, were you more impressed by Canelo's offense, by his defense? Was there, was there indeed anything from, from Canelo Alvarez that impressed you on Saturday night? Yeah, I was impressed. Uh, again, I thought this was the sort of fight that he clearly wanted to fight and Jacobs didn't push the pace enough to uh, prevent him from fighting this sort of fight. And, and within, within those confines of a, not that thrilling fight, I thought the skill that he put on display was quite impressive. So whether I was more impressed by his offense or his defense, that that's a close call. I mean, you look at the CompuBox connect percentages. He was really impressive on, on both sides of the ball there. Mm. Canelo landed at 40%. That's very high for a fight against an elite opponent. And he held Jacobs to just 20% landed. That's exceptionally low. Um, I'd say the defense is the slightly more impressive number, and it also stood out slightly more watching him. Canelo's defense was really dialed in. He seemed to know exactly what Jacobs was going to throw sometimes. Um, And, of course, it was the combination of his defense and, as you suggested earlier, his counterpunching that seemed to handcuffed Jacobs in some of those early to middle rounds, which is where Canelo really won the fight. I thought he started pulling away in rounds four and five, thought he won both of those rounds very clearly, and Jacobs' offense was really slowing down in those rounds. Offensively, Canelo did a good job going to the body. His jabs and hooks were on point. He fought well, but I'd say the head movement and making Jacobs miss, that stood out more, uh, which, you know, that right there tells you it wasn't a great action-packed fight if the defense is what stood out most. Um, right. Okay, so enough about this ho-hum affair. Let's jump to the future. The big question, do you expect to see Canelo Triple G3 in the fall? Probably, and and I think, I think probably a little bit more likely given the way that the fight unfolded on Saturday night. Like, had it been more of a a grueling ordeal for Canelo, perhaps the kind of fight that we'd expected, Right. you know, he would have perhaps been justified in in throwing up some roadblocks and and saying, no, let's let's do it next May. And he still may, right? Canelo's going to play hardball. He's already indicated that he's going to play hardball. He's already said he only wants to fight um, for the last remaining alphabet belt um and so you know i i don't think he'd be averse to trying to make golovkin and demetrius andrade fight first but he also knows where the money is and he came through uh, the jacobs fight without you know any any real difficulty so totally possible and golovkin on the other hand as well might also look at that and look at the way the fight went and think well oh, you know what you know maybe uh that that wasn't very impressive. Maybe uh, I 
he, he might even be licking his lips a little bit at, at getting an opportunity to fight Canelo again. You know, if I were Golovkin, I might be. Because if I were Golovkin, I'd be a lot cooler as well. But um, <laughs> you so, would also be a terrible podcast partner. The, the <laughs> imagine hosting, co-hosting a podcast with Gennady Golovkin. That would not go well. I'm glad you're no. not Gennady Golovkin. That's the bottom line. No, I, I, th- I think probably both of us have picked the right career paths. <laughs> yeah. Had we swapped, it wouldn't be very good. So my sense is probably, although I wouldn't be completely shocked if Canelo ends up taking something else in the fall and we're talking about Canelo Triple G3 a year from now, as you as you talked about last week. So probably, but not definitely, is the very, is the TLDR answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the two key points that you hit on there that I agree completely with are that this fight was not physically punishing, so there's no reason he can't go straight from a on-paper tough fight against Jacobs right into an on-paper tough fight against Golovkin. Um, and the other thing is I agree totally that Triple G should absolutely want this fight uh, in, in September. I see no reason from his perspective uh, to wait and let himself get any older. If he can have it in September, absolutely he's going to jump on it, I think. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some other fights from the weekend, and there were several notable bouts on the Canelo Jacobs undercard. Uh, Virgil Ortiz Jr. scored a spectacular third-round knockout win over Mauricio Herrera. Jojo Diaz stopped Freddy Fonseca when his corner threw in the towel in the seventh. Lamont Roach Jr. won a debatable unanimous decision over Jonathan Okendo, and Anthony Young upset Saddam Ali via third round stoppage. What stands out to you? If, if there's one fighter or result or moment from this undercard that you'll remember a few years from now, what is it? So Anthony Young stopping Saddam Ali was a little bit of a shocker to me. I think some people, quite a few people called it um, or thought that Young would win. But nonetheless, you know, even though I thought the stoppage itself was arguably a bit premature, Young was whomping Ali um, during those three rounds. And really nothing's gone right for Saddam Ali since the Miguel Cotto fight. Uh, yeah. He's really at a crossroads now. But but in terms of, you know, what's, what's sort of meaningful or what's going to stand out, Virgil Ortiz, man, he is... He's something. He's uh, he's been a highly touted prospect uh, for a while now. And yeah, look, Mauricio Herrera has certainly been around for a while, but he's never been stopped. And just the, and the way that Ortiz just tore into him, um, that was an extraordinarily impressive outing. I think that's the kind of thing that we all look back. I think Virgil Ortiz is going places and that's the fight that we will look back on and go, yeah, that was that was his real coming out performance uh, uh, for Virgil Ortiz. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I think it's uh, it's the Ortiz KO that, that stands out most because it was brutal and decisive, and that's never happened to Herrera before. Mm. It does lose a little less luster because Herrera is done. He was he was looking right. washed five months ago against Saddam Ali. Um, and and speaking of Ali, and you mentioned it uh the the stoppage that that was probably the the number two standout moment for me that i saw some people blasting that stoppage by robert bird i thought it was maybe a tad ill-timed just because the last four or five punches missed but young was hurting ali with almost yep. everything he landed so I, I didn't mind the stoppage i certainly what has happened to you <laughs> i don't know <laughs> Uh, clear, clearly, my I'm reaching that age where my testosterone levels are going down <laughs> rapidly. Um, but uh, the other thing that, that stood out was uh, was Jojo Diaz's hair. Let's talk about that. He, uh, he he looked like a human snow cone. 
which which is the worst treat that they sell on the ice cream cream truck, by the way. You know, it, it's just flavored ice. It loses its flavor within seconds. You see a kid who chooses the snow cone from among dozens of options. That's a kid who's going nowhere in life. That's, See, that's I my harsh statement. Meant the human snow cone was the worst. Was the oh. worst flavor. I'm like, what, what ice cream trucks did you ever go <laughs> Wow, strange like cannibal slash ice cream crossover. Wow, oh, this, this, this got dark. Great. We should do more podcasts on no sleep. It's great. <laughs> All right, let's get back to boxing. And but well, let's stay on Jojo Diaz. Um, he he looked good at 130 pounds, albeit against a non-threatening opponent. Uh, and one interesting thing coming out of this undercard is that Jojo and Tevin Farmer are now calling each other out. Right. What's your level of excitement for that matchup and quick gut reaction? Who should be the favorite if the fight happens? Um, the level of excitement is a little bit uh, higher than it was before Jojo Diaz fought um, and looked good. Mm. Uh, yes, against a you know sort of overmatched opponent, but... You know, watching Jojo Diaz score a KO is like watching Halley's Comet. It's it's one of those things that years from now you'll be able to tell your tell your uh, offspring about. Um, but yeah, no, I do like the idea of it, uh, especially not only with the fact that they called each other out, but the sheer level of smack talking just was was excellent, excellent uh, grade A level, and it just kept on going. Um, more than that, though, it is a good skillful matchup. Uh, Javante Davis would probably be fuming on the sidelines um, um, if it were to happen, because obviously that's been uh, a potential matchup that's been brewing. And, and I think I'd probably still prefer to see Javante against Kevin Farmer. But um, but no, I, I think I feel like I'm still a little bit tainted, perhaps unfairly, after seeing, you know, Jojo step up against Gary Russell and, and fall quite a bit far short. Um, and... That might be unfair because Gary Russell is very skillful. Right. But um, I think I would make Tevin Farmer the favorite were that to happen. But it, but it would be an excellent fight to see. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, <clears throat> there were actually other fights. Imagine being at the other fights last night. Um, <laughs> uh, on ESPN, Arta Paterbiev took care of business against Rodovich Hot Rod. I noticed, by the way, that um, the commentary team on ESPN was very smart and only called him Hot Rod. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was on a, a PBC NBC show uh, on which he fought, and uh, I think his full name was stated once at the beginning of the fight, and then we went <laughs> Hot Rod from there on out. <laughs> um, anyway, he stopped all Hot Rod in five rounds, dropping him in the third, uh, finishing him in the fifth. Also a slightly oddly timed stoppage, I thought, uh, a, a little bit. Um, yeah. Made it 14 stoppages and 14 wins from 14 starts for Beterbiev. Uh, he immediately pre- professed himself to be unhappy with his performance, said he wanted to show his boxing more. And it was, you know, more of a slugfest than it was a, a boxing performance. But, you know, nonetheless, a, a fairly dominant one. Um, was Beterbiev being a bit hard on himself, do you think? Um and where does he fit in what is really a very interesting picture atop the uh, light heavyweight division? Yeah, it, it is interesting, and he certainly uh, is a name that, that you have to mention. You know, th- this fight was on, it started almost the exact same time as Canelo against Jacobs, and it had some of the action that the big middleweight fight lacked. You know, it wasn't anything special, uh, right. but they were both swinging for the fences and landing, and uh, and. Terbiev was was hurting Hot Rod repeatedly. Uh, it was impressive. You know, uh, Kalajic is no world beater. He was the clear underdog here. But that fight that I referenced that I was ringside for, that was when 
I thought he deserved to narrowly beat Marcus Brown a few years ago. So, you know, the the one-sidedness here makes a good statement for Beterbiev. I, I think he is being maybe a little hard on himself. Um, it's funny, though. He, he's fallen to being that guy that you tack on at the end of the conversation when you're discussing <laughs> yes. the light heavyweights. You know, it's Kovalev, Bivol, Gvozdik. You might even mention a later Alvarez or Marcus Brown first. And then it's like, oh, yeah, uh, Beterbiev, too. Um, and that's because he's on about a four-year run of not fighting often enough and, yeah. unlike all those other names, not fighting against a meaningful opponent, not mixing in with the best in the division. But he still might be the guy to emerge here. He, he's very talented. He's relentless. As you said, he's 14-0, and 14 KOs. Somehow we're overlooking a guy who's 14-0 and with 14 KOs. Uh, this fight was a nice reminder and display of, of what he can do. Hopefully he'll face a real top five light heavyweight soon because he's 34 and, you know, fighting once or twice a year against fridge contenders isn't getting him anywhere. Indeed. All right, let's look ahead. Let's preview some fights on Friday night from Corona, California, starting at 10.30 p.m. on Showtime. We have a Showbox triple header, fights in three of the old school eight divisions, Bantamweight, Featherweight, and Lightweight. And the main event is a Featherweight 10-rounder pitting Ruben Villa, uh, best known for being 33 and one third percent responsible for my infamous <laughs> Ruben sandwich joke on episode one. See, I'm putting one third of the blame on him, one third on his opponent, Ruben Cervera, and one third on me. I think that's fair. Um, Villa, <laughs> Villa makes his return to Showbox against Mexico's Luis Alberto Lopez. The 22-year-old Villa is 15-0 with five KOs. The 25-year-old Lopez is 17-1 with eight KOs and is coming off an upset win over 18-1 Ray Jimenez in his U.S. debut in February. Lopez looks like a solid test, an awkward and aggressive fighter, but I'm high on Villa. I, I said after his last fight uh, on this podcast, uh, quote, I can't wait to see Ruben Villa again. I just love his fighting style. Well, my wait is over. Uh, Kieran, are you similarly excited for the return of one half of the Ruben sandwich? Uh, and <laughs> what are you looking to see from him against Lopez? So not quite as excited as you. I went back and <clears throat> listened to that same podcast because I recalled being in the aftermath a bit less enthused than you. And indeed, my recollection was correct. Um, I liked his performance uh, uh, last time out against Ruben Severa. Uh, I liked his skills. But I didn't feel enthused. I remember not feeling like absolutely compelled to watch him again and, and i did feel like something was missing a little bit um to some extent one of the things that's missing a little bit is is a power punch of right. course as you noted he's only scored five stoppages in his in his 15 pro fights uh which isn't necessarily disqualifying um you know he does show tremendous balance great composure he's compact good hand speed excellent boxing skills and one of the things you know that i noted uh in that episode when, when we look back on it was that I thought that his opponent played a role in his, to me, not looking super exceptional. Um, Severa was crude. You know, he swung big punches that generally missed, and, and he sort of went into his shell somewhat by the end. And I remember saying that I thought that Villa would look better against somebody who tried to engage him or who was more aggressive. And I actually expect that that's what we'll get from Lopez. You know, Lopez fashions himself as an aggressive boxer, and that's what he showed in that upset of Jimenez. So I'm fully expecting Lopez to take it to Villa, and I'm looking forward to seeing how Villa responds to that. Um, interested also to see if it goes the distance, which it probably will. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Villa, I'm interested to see Villa going 10 rounds for the first time in his career. He hasn't had a scheduled 10-rounder yet, whereas Lopez is has gone 10, I think, three times. But, you know, having said that, Lopez has gone, um, uh, Villa's gone eight rounds 
several times. So it's not a huge step up, but it's certainly it's a, it's a new step in, in his development. Um, so neither guys are really newcomers to the sport. Lopez started boxing at age 16, which is absolutely nothing compared to Villa, who first gloved up at age five. <laughs> He had a tr- tremendous uh, amateur career, Devia, who uh, culminated in a loss to Shakura Stevenson at the uh, 2016 Olympic trials. He's been exceptionally active as a pro, uh, fighting every two or three months. Um, when he fights on Friday, he'll be off for four months, which is a career-long lo- layoff. Um, Lopez, in his scouting report on Via, described him as a good boxer without a punch, which is hard to disagree with, but it's not very comprehensive. <laughs> Um, do you have any more detailed scouting reports on these guys? Uh, you know, it, it is an accurate scouting report. He, he is a good boxer, but he doesn't have much of a punch. Uh, but, you know, the word good definitely undersells his boxing skill, in my view. Uh, you know, he's, he's really slick. Uh, and he fights southpaw, but he isn't actually left-handed, which, you know, when fighters do that, they often have some pop in their jab. Um, to me, V is just a, a joy to watch. He, he's constantly thinking in the ring, being creative. Um, so I, I hope Lopez knows that he is more than just a good boxer without a punch. <laughs> um, and you, you may have seen that uh, Lopez's nickname is Venado, which means deer. Uh, apparently he got the nickname because he was fleet of foot as a kid. Um, well, I hope he's not going to be a deer in the headlights here. Uh, it's a uh... big, big stage, tough opponent. So I, I hope Lopez is ready for what Villa brings. That, that was nothing compared to Ruben Sandwich. Uh, you know, that was just a little peek into where my brain goes, uh, but not, not not as deep a peek as Ruben Sandwich. Uh, so, okay, let's make predictions. Um, with these Showbox shows, we do predictions just for the main event. Uh, I'm currently leading you 37 to 32 in our little competition. You're up first with your pick for this one. Kieran, who you got? Um, so, as I, as I mentioned earlier, look, I'm fully expecting uh, Lopez to be aggressive, um, without necessarily being cavalierly so. Uh, as you said, he's, he's a bit awkward with his aggressiveness. And as a consequence, I think he might well take a couple of the early rounds uh, as Via kind of tries to see what, he, what he's what he got uh, in front of him. But I do just have a feeling that, while this is a, another step up for Via, uh, uh, I think, you know, in terms of his progression, it's also a real opportunity for him to shine. Uh, Lopez is a dangerous opponent. His reputation's higher than than it was just a few months ago because he just scored that upset win. His style will test Via, but I think it will also enable him to bring out, look his best. I think it'll bring the best out of him. And perhaps after a few awkward early rounds, I fully expect Via to start timing him, to be throwing combinations in between his punches. Um, Lopez's defense is nothing like as good as Villa's. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if actually by the end, Villa is fairly tattooing him down the stretch. Lopez is decent. But I think there's a difference in class here. And I think we will see Via ultimately ease to a 10-round decision win. Yeah, it's interesting in in your analysis there that you, uh, looking at Lopez, are focusing more on the aggressiveness. And he is aggressive, but... To me, watching him, it was the awkwardness that, that kind mm-hmm. of stood out that goes along with that aggressiveness. Um, I don't think his style will make it so easy for Villa. If Villa wins every round against this guy like he did against Ruben Cervera, that, that would be a real statement. Um, Lopez fights with his hands low. He's a little wild, but he, he's quick. Um, but I certainly think Villa has the skill and discipline to deal with Lopez. Um, I don't expect it to be easy. In the end, though, I think we're landing right around the same uh, spot scoring-wise. I, I 
like Ruben Villa on points, unanimous decision, with Lopez probably winning two or three rounds along the way. And like I said, if Villa does better than that, if he wins nine or ten rounds, that suggests to me that his ceiling is really high, that we're we're Mm. looking at a top prospect here. Uh, And the co-feature bout. We got another really interesting prospect. Eight rounds in the lightweight division, and we get our first look on Showtime at a Michael West Texas Warrior Dutchover, who tries to extend his four-fight knockout streak against Chile's Ramon Mascarena Jr. Uh, he's the bigger man in the bout, Mascarena. He's fought mostly at 140 pounds as a pro. The 21-year-old Dutchover is 12 and 0 with nine KOs. Mascarena, who is 25, is 10 and 0 with five KOs. So, what are your thoughts? We've already talked about what a potentially very good prospect via is what about uh dutchover's potential and how tough of a test is mascarena i think dutchover is a good prospect he's not a jumps off the screen guy yet based on what i've seen he's not especially fast and that's something that limits the ceiling he is a strong body puncher and he has a great amateur pedigree 130 wins 16 losses as an amateur so we'll see I don't think he's on Ruben Villa's level as a prospect, um, but I think he's matched safely enough against Mascarena. Uh, on paper, at 10-0, and 0, Mascarena is his best opponent, but Mascarena eked one out against 4-4-1 and one Hector Medina in his last fight. Uh, he, he looks like a Chilean club fighter with a nice record to me, hmm. um, and it's probably not going to be as nice a record after this fight. <laughs> uh, Mascarena punches a little wide. He's not very fluid. I think Dutchover is the clear favorite here in this battle of unbeatens. Um, And in the opening bout on the card, we have a bantamweight 10-rounder between two 21-year-old fighters who have both never been beyond eight rounds. Uh, Saul Sanchez of Pacoima, California, meets Brandon Benitez of Mexico. Sanchez is trained by Joel Diaz. Uh, His brother Emilio is also a pro fighter, one division up at 122 pounds. Sanchez is 11-0 with six KOs, and in Benitez, he faces an opponent who is 14-1, also with six KOs. His only loss coming against a fighter who was 10-0 at the time and is now 20-0. I'd ask you for a scouting report on Benitez, But I know you don't have one because there's literally no footage of him on YouTube. Uh, So he's a mystery. Uh, But, Kieran, what's your scouting report on Sanchez? Well, he's certainly solid. He's a three-year pro. um, And like, as you mentioned, like Ruben Villa, this is his first scheduled 10-rounder. He's been eight rounds just once. and That was in his last fight. And if there's a warning sign, it was it was a tough, tough fight for him and a close win, a majority decision win over Luis Cefedra, uh, one in which he had to dig really deep, um, scores 76-76 and two scores of 77-75. Um, he's a good boxer with decent pop. Um, as you already touched on, he's not only from a boxing family, but he has an excellent trainer from a similarly excellent boxing uh, family uh, in, in uh, Joel Diaz. Diaz is really, really high on him. Um, he said that the, the kid could be a future world champ, which perhaps you expect a trainer to say about his young charge. Um, but he hasn't yet really fought anyone of, of great consequence. Um, the records of those that he's fought are not too impressive so far. And he was, as I said, he was really pushed to the limit in his last outing, at least going on his record. And like you said, that's basically all we have to go on with Benitez. Right. Benitez will be his toughest opponent yet by a country mile. All right. Um, the night after that showbox card on Saturday, May 11th, there are two fight cards of note. First on Fox, 154-pound title holder Jarrett Hurd takes on Julian Williams. And on the undercard, it's Mario Barrios against Juan Jose Velasco and Matt Koroboff 
against Emmanuel Alim. Uh, I love the main event, of course. We've got some tremendous talent at the top of the 154-pound, 160-pound divisions right now. Uh, this is another great example of the multiple matchups that are available in, the, in those divisions. Uh, that said, um, if Julian J. Rock Williams wants to stay at the top table, uh, there's really a bit of pressure on him to prevail here. Uh, he did, after all, come up short against Jamal Charlo, getting knocked out in the fifth round. So, Eric, do you see him faring any better in his second alphabet title shot? Probably not, because Jared Hurd is really good. Just just yeah. as good as Charlo, I think. Um, J-Rock Williams from Philly. Go Sixers. Uh, he's, a, he's a good fighter. He did well on the way up against fellow prospects and gatekeepers and fringe contenders, but... The only time he stepped up close to this level was against Charlo, and he got dropped three times in five rounds, really got smacked around. Now he's taking on a guy in Herd who beat Arislandi Lara, who stopped Austin Trout, who stopped Tony Harrison, who's really strong at 154 mm. pounds. He can punch. He likes to slug. I just don't see what J-Rock has that's going to help him beat Herd. It's a good fight. It's a fun fight. I'm looking forward to it. It's just not a hard fight to pick a winner, in my view. Yeah. Uh, the same night, Saturday, on ESPN, we get a rematch to a fight that you and I covered on HBO in 2017, Miguel Berchelt versus Francisco Vargas, plus a rematch to an excellent fight from just five months ago, Emmanuel Navarrete versus Isaac Dogbay. Which of these rematches are you more intrigued by, and do you think either of the fighters who lost the first time have a good shot at revenge? Uh, so I guess I have a you know greater personal interest in the Burchell Vargas rematch because as you noted, um, was, I was ringside for for that first fight and indeed for many of those guys' fights over the last few years. Um, that whole 103 pound round robin was a was a real treat to watch unfold from ringside. Um, but I actually think Navarrete Dogbe is a, is a bit more intriguing. I mean Dogbe was really on a roll. He really become you know a, a highly talked about contender. Uh, he just flat out fustigated Jesse Magdaleno um, before before he met Navarrete, and, and Navarrete just wasn't known really. It wasn't a known quantity at all going into that fight. But the Mexican fought a terrific fight to uh, to beat him. Really utilized his reach advantage very well. Um, you know, gradually rearranged dog base features really. I mean, closed pretty much closed both his eyes by yeah. the end, so that over the last couple of rounds. You know, Dog Bay was really didn't know what he was swinging at. Um, and, and I think finding a way to counter that reach is going to be a challenge for, for, for Dog Bay. That said, you know, even as he was getting outboxed and outfought down the stretch, um, he was he was still fighting. He was still throwing. He was still trying to try to be in it. So even though it's going to be a real challenge for him, I, I feel like he might have the slightly better chance of getting revenge in the two rematches. Um Vargas has been in so many tough fights, um, including some dramatic ones that that you and I have been ringside for. Mm -hmm. um, Chelt's really solid, um, and also I fully expect Vargas to start bleeding during the ring walk. So yeah. um, I'm pretty sure it, he's bleeding already. He probably uh, is. Sun, exactly. Sunday Just, morning, a, a week before the fight. Yep, some, he's yeah, cut. Some, he's cut. Yeah. Anytime he's mentioned on a podcast, a little <laughs> cut breaks out. Um, so I think. I think it's going to be tough for either guy to to turn around the result, but I I, I slightly favor Dog Bay, Dog Bay's chances uh, over Vargas's. I think. Okay. 
Uh, let's cover a few notable news items from the past week, uh, starting, uh, as we often seem to, with the heavyweight division. Uh, two related stories here. Uh, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, Jarrell Big Baby Miller failed more drug tests than Tommy Chong and Keith Richards sharing a tent at Burning Man uh, and therefore lost out on his shot at Anthony Joshua. We learned on Monday Miller's punishment, or at least part of it, as the WBA gave him a six-month suspension, far short of the two years that you predicted. But then again, when he applies for a license after six months, a state might deny him a license until he serves a longer suspension. The The alphabet group doesn't really get the final word here. Uh, meanwhile, a couple of days after that suspension was announced, more news. Joshua got a new opponent, and though he isn't as marketable as Miller... He could be an even tougher test as Andy Ruiz steps in on a month's notice. Ruiz might not look the part like Miller does. Um, if Ruiz is built like an athlete, it's the kind that competes in Coney Island on July 4th. Um, <laughs> but he can fight. So, uh, Kieran, give me your thoughts on Miller's suspension and on how Matchroom Boxing did in salvaging Joshua's U.S. debut with Ruiz. Right. So the important thing to emphasize with regard to the Miller thing is you know as you noted really it's not massively consequential um the the suspension it's it's coming from an alphabet body uh, it means it's means he's temporarily out of their rankings and they're not gonna deny themselves the opportunity to take part of a fighter's purse any longer than they they need to <laughs> right. so um you know and, and, and as you mentioned look, at the end of those six months he can then apply for a license and I still don't think he's going to get one. Um, not for a while. Uh, New York ain't giving him a license anytime soon. Uh, and I rather suspect that neither are California or Nevada or, or Jersey. Um, one addendum that I will make actually to when I talked about his suspension uh, and I thought he'd get suspended for like a couple of years. Um, one thing I was wrong about there was that he couldn't really be suspended because he didn't actually have a license in New York. At the time, uh, so he can't be suspended from a license that he doesn't have. So it's it is as you sort of mentioned, it's a case of what will happen when he applies for one. Um, if he's smart, which based, based, <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Yeah. If he's yep. smart, if he's smart, and if he can find an opponent, he'll go to like Oklahoma or somewhere and right. get a couple fights there, and and hope that by the time. If, if it happens, he's in a position for a bigger fight that enough time will have gone past and, and things will have blown over and, and the fact that he will have been licensed somewhere will work in his favor. But I still maintain he is not getting a license at any significant state for a while. Um, and that's for the second part of your, your question for Andy Ruiz. Well, Ruiz is just coming off a win uh, just on April 20th. He fought very recently. Mm -hmm. Quick turnaround for him. He has fast hands, Ruiz. He can box really well. Um, the problem he's going to have is that he's going to be at tremendous disadvantages in reach and height against uh, Anthony Joshua. He's only 6'2", which is decent size for normal humanity, but up against <laughs> Anthony Joshua is is you know going to be a real disadvantage. Uh, he's only got a decent amount of, of, of pop in his punches, nothing sensational. Um, the interesting thing is I'm not sure there's anybody quite like Andy Ruiz. He'll, he'll be an awkward challenge challenge um especially as initially joshua would have been preparing for an entirely different kind of opponent um 
Uh, the big problem, I think, and, and you, you talked about this, is that it's going to be a much more difficult sell for casual fans. You know, Miller was going to sell that fight very, very well. He was in the process of selling himself as an opponent really well. Ruiz doesn't talk. Doesn't He's, he's not a great talker. And as you mentioned, look, those who know Andy Ruiz know he can fight, know right. that he's a really good boxer. But if you don't know Andy Ruiz and you look at him, he just doesn't look the part. Um, and so engaged fight fans are going to know that this is an interesting fight. Uh, the casual ones who are maybe looking for a good night out at, at the garden or not. Um, I was, a, I was at a, his weigh-in for his bout with Tor Hamer in Macau. And he actually got laughed at at the weigh-in, um, which yeah. I've never seen happen before. His weight, but that said, even though his weight isn't much different now, he's generally in the high 250s, sort of around 260, something like that. He carries it a lot better. Um, but perhaps I think the most germane thing when discussing this is that, you know, when he has stepped up against Joseph Parker, he came up just short. It was a good fight, but it didn't quite do enough and parker is even though he was once being touted as possible like the big rival to anthony joshua just just not quite in in that same league um i suspect he would probably fall somewhat shorter against joshua than he did against parker but all of that said in the circumstances given who is available right um given that luis ortiz's people apparently actually turned down a large amount of money um it's as good enough it's as, as good a salvage a job as, as could possibly have been done uh joshua's going to be in a tough fight he's going to be in an awkward fight um it's not going to be i think as entertaining as, as a jarell miller fight but it's the best that really realistically could be done i think agree uh in addition to that there's a couple more june fights were announced um on june 23rd Former 154-pound titleist uh, Jamel Charlo, it's another another rematch. Uh, he gets a chance to avenge his disputed, heavily disputed decision loss to Tony Harrison. One division up at middleweight. Uh, the aforementioned Demetrius Andrade meets Maciej Shulensky on June 29th in Andrade's hometown of Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, two really good fights, actually, to add to the calendar. Um, I'll ask you a question that you more or less just asked me. Do you find <laughs> one more intriguing than the other? I find them both quite intriguing. Let me start with that. Um, it's a tough call because Harrison versus Charlo, we've seen that before. Andrade Suletsky is something new. Maybe it's Andrade's best test. At the same time, I would be very surprised if Andrade actually lost to Suletsky, especially in Providence. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised by any outcome in Harrison Charlo, too. So in the end, I guess I'm more interested in that rematch. Uh, Andrade Suletsky, I mean, Suletsky almost got iced by Gabe Rosado a couple of months ago. Mm. Uh, Andrade is a really talented dude who just can't get an invite to the party at the top of the middleweight yeah. division. So I expect him to win going away, even though Solensky is a very good opponent. Um, so I'll say I'm more intrigued by the question of whether Harrison can do it again. Um, and I know you called it extremely disputed. Um, I did think Harrison probably eked that fight out, uh, but... You know, he certainly didn't win definitively. When I say whether Harrison can do it again, I basically mean can he last 12 and keep it close again and see what happens, uh, or whether Charlo can get revenge and get back on track, and whether he'll fight a little angry, maybe, and, and maybe yeah. make some mistakes. So that's a really interesting rematch to me. Um, all right, let's wrap up the news segment with a fight idea that's being floated. You brought this to my attention, Kieran. 
Timzu, son of Kostya, is calling out one of his dad's most famous opponents, Zab Judah, saying he wants to end Judah's career. Now, I've never actually seen Timzu fight, so I have no idea if he's any good or if he's just kind of getting some hype on the zoo name. If he is good, I hate this. I don't need to see some young prospect beating up 40-something Zab. But if he's not that good... And maybe this is something I'd be interested in. Uh, Kieran, does it do anything at all for you, or are you mostly just grossed out by the idea? Yeah, yeah, the latter, I okay. think. I mean, like like you said, I, I also have no idea whether Tim, Tim Zoo can fight at all. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. I was trying to think of any kind of comparison here, and I guess the closest analog I can think of is Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. beating up Grover Wiley. But, um, <laughs> but Wiley wasn't yeah. 41 or 42 or whatever Zab is. And and this isn't even a case of revenge like that was. I mean, that was, hey, you, you beat my dad. I'm going to beat you up. This was my dad making you look really stupid 20 years ago or whatever it was. And now I'm going to do the same. Right. Um, I, Tim Zhu is looking to get some attention for his nascent career, I think. Yes. And that's, I think that's basically what's going on. I have no idea how realistic this is. But the thing is, who could bet against Zab taking the bait? Really? Right. Let's be honest. So I don't know. Of course, First, Zab has the Hebrew hammer to navigate in a couple of weeks. So right, we yes, just... this this helps build uh, Judah versus Selden into an even <laughs> bigger right. fight because That's... Judah Zoo Two sort of awaits on the other side, possibly yes. maybe. Yes. All right, uh, before we finish, it is mailbag time. But as I hinted at the top of the uh, the podcast, before we read this week's question, Kira Mulvaney has a big mea culpa regarding last week's mailbag. <laughs> We were asked about late career trainer changes that work exceptionally well or exceptionally poorly. And somehow neither one of us thought of this. And it's shameful enough for Eric, but it's inexcusable for me that Kira Mulvaney did not think of Kira Mulvaney's man crush Miguel Cotto <laughs> successfully teaming with Freddie Roach as his career appears to be winding down. I mean, look, Kira Mulvaney has been in camp with Miguel Cotto and Freddie Roach. Kira Mulvaney has talked to Miguel Cotto at length about what Freddie Roach did for Miguel Cotto's career. But... Kira Mulvaney's brain is not what it used to be. And Kira <laughs> Mulvaney's brain was not starting from a particularly high point to begin with. So there you go. Jimmy likes when Kieran Mulvaney <laughs> speaks in the third person. <laughs> okay, we'll try to be better this week. Well, see, this is a bit of an interesting one because this is a bit of a swerve. Circumstances changed between this question being asked and us having the opportunity to answer it. But we shall go ahead uh, with it anyway. Uh, the question came from, it's related it came from Lyle uh, at LB Landry, um, and he asked, which trainer do you guys feel would make the best fit with later career Triple G? Uh, could you see as much of an influence as, say, what Buddy McGirt showed with Kovalev recently, i.e. smarter approach in getting the most out of Triple G's boxing IQ? Well, we don't even really need to speculate on who <laughs> might be helping Triple G anymore, Eric. That's right. Uh, it was announced... Uh... When was it? I guess Friday uh, that he uh, well, Saturday morning even. was a Saturday morning. OK, so it was just announced uh, recently that he uh, has selected Jonathan Banks to be his trainer. So as you said, we don't really need to speculate about which trainer might be a good fit. Instead, we'll sort of redirect the question and just uh, talk about how we like this particular decision from T Triple G. And I got to say, I don't love it. It feels like a here's somebody who will work cheap kind of decision yes. um, with Vladimir Klitschko, which is that's that's who Banks is primarily known for training was he took over uh, Vladimir's corner uh, after Emmanuel Stewart passed uh, Banks. 
clearly wasn't making Vladimir better. Uh, he was just kind of trying not to make him worse and, and trying to prepare him like Manny Stewart had. But I don't get the sense that he's a master strategist. I don't see him as a great motivator. Um, and, you know, it's a small sample size. It's him working with one fighter who was already pretty fully developed. But still, um, I think this is Gennady saying that he's reached the point in his career where he can mostly coach himself. And and maybe he can. A lot of guys do, like Floyd Mayweather, Bernard Hopkins. They were pretty much training themselves by the end. I'll just say this. I was hoping Triple G would go with someone who would insist he throw lots of body shots again. Mm. Uh, and if that's Banks, good. Uh, so that that's something I'm watching for against Steve Rolls. I want the return of body-punching badass Golovkin. Uh, yes. what, what, what do you think of uh, his decision to go with Banks? I think, to follow up on your theme, this has a touch of the Abro Tursum Pulatov about it. And I just wanted ah, to say that because <laughs> I wanted to... <laughs> I Show took off. so long uh, figuring out how to say that that I just don't want to, you know, lose the opportunity to. Uh, that, of course, being the guy that uh, Sergei Kovalev uh, hooked up with for a few fights after he left John David Jackson. And that, again, also, even though, you know, Sergei said, oh, yeah, this guy, he, you know, I can learn from him and so forth. It was it was a, a comfort thing. I think he went with somebody who he was kind of starting to chafe against John David Jackson, pushing him in certain ways. He wanted a comfortable situation. And this feels like it's a comfortable situation for Gennady Golovkin. And I certainly didn't see it coming. But in hindsight, it sort of makes sense. And you mentioned the Klitschko connection. Also, he trains Cecilia Brakus, who's part of that whole, you know, K2 group. So he's clearly familiar with him. And importantly, he's presumably much more comfortable than Abel Sanchez was taking 2% or 1% or whatever. Uh, So, yeah, this does feel like a... I'm comfortable with this guy. I know what I'm doing. I guess I have to have a trainer in the corner. <laughs> right. It does feel like that. I don't want to be mean to Jonathan Banks, but, no. but it does kind of have that feeling about it a little bit. Um, mm. So, uh, but yes, no, no, we'll see. Absolutely. You know, maybe sometimes any kind of change. Just, you know, maybe even though it was nominally all about money, maybe after a while, you know, you, you hear Abel saying the same things over and over and it just doesn't, doesn't, register anymore maybe just having a different voice saying something can make a difference so so who knows we shall see i, I doubt that we'll find out very much against steve rolls it'll be september right. or so before we really find out true uh, but anyway thanks for the question lyle and i hope you appreciated the answer that was not the one that you were looking for <laughs> all right <laughs> but you know circumstances changed and we must adapt um remember folks you can ask your own mailbag question and we may answer it or we may answer a completely different question you never know uh you can ask at any time by posting on twitter with the hashtag ask showpod uh, and that will do it for this edition of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney a couple of programming notes for this friday as we mentioned earlier showbox airs at 10 30 eastern and pacific and right before that it's the premiere of all access Wilder versus Brazil at 10 p.m. And we will be back next week with multiple podcasts as it will be Wilder Brazil Fight Week in Brooklyn. And we will have a lot to talk about. Until then, thanks for listening.